let's get into it. So another episode of Curdos Insights, another easy title, so I'm going to go for it. So we are talking about five key areas when it comes to B2B buying behaviours and why sales need to change. Um, so we have Paul with us here today, so really exciting, another guest. And I think these free rate conversations are really strong, so Absolutely. excited for another one. Um, as I always do, Paul, I think it'd be good to give you the opportunity to briefly introduce yourself for the people that don't know who you are, what you do, um, and then we can kind of go through those five key areas. Okay, uh, well, firstly, Joe and Laurie, thank you for inviting me along today. Um, My name's Paul Moss. I'm the um, Business Development and Strategic Partnerships Director at Intergage Marketing Engineers. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're a 20-plus-year-old digital marketing agency that specialises in helping manufacturing, engineering and technology companies to improve their sales outcomes through the implementation of, of marketing campaigns and marketing and sales technology. Uh, my background is, well, I was originally a process engineering chemist in industry very long time ago, um, but subsequently moved into the sales, marketing and BD world mm-hmm. um, in 1988. So I've been doing this kind of thing for over 34 years now. Um, I've worked for a mix of SMEs, uh, medium-sized enterprises, uh, startup technology companies and some of the biggest brands on the planet. So, you know, historically worked for companies like Toshiba, Alcatel, Novotel and, you know, some some big mm. publicly listed firms. And at my heart, much like Joe, I guess, I, I'm, I'm an out-and-out B2B salesperson, but mm-hmm. I've also worn the marketing director hat, the commercial director hat over the years as well. Amazing. I wanted to ask you initially, Paul, because I know you've recently started working with, with Joe and Curdos on a yeah. partnership basis. I was looking at your LinkedIn earlier, and your bio says, if you're tired of spending your company's hard-earned money on ineffective marketing campaigns, and it goes on. So I wanted to ask you off the back of that statement, what drew you to working with and partnering with Curdos? I, I think the thing that struck me when Joe and I had our first conversation, which was only a couple of months ago, is that well, firstly, we're both operating in the same sector. We have complementary, not competitive, service offerings. Okay. I think also I was very much struck by Kurdos's hands-on, numbers-driven approach to building sales, you know, uh, successful sales outcomes for their clients. Mm. And we have very much the same philosophy. It's a no-fluff, let's-get-stuff-done philosophy. And Mm. I I think that really, really sort of resonated with me when Joe and I had our first conversation, uh, you know, a couple of months ago. Mm. Um, And as I said, we're not competing with each other. I think our our, um, service offerings and our skill sets are extremely complementary. So really that was, you know, that was that was the sort of nub of everything when Mm. we had our first conversations. I mean, Joe, yeah, yeah, to add to that, um, I would say that Paul's clients need people to be funneled in and we need our clients to close business and handle their pipeline properly. Mm. They do the after after bit of when we pass opportunities through. They also do the online funnels as well, so helping clients create that demand funnel, but it's more of the aftercare of that, of pipeline management and ecosystem driving, etc. Whereas we find a lot of our clients, certainly the ones that don't have the... Um, I guess the strategy to generate the opportunities and generate the demand in the first place. Typically, the next stage that we identify is the sales bit. Mm. You know, why aren't you closing these unbelievably, you know, positions opportunities? And and that's where we would then essentially introduce to Paul and the team to say, hey, maybe there's something you're doing wrong after. 
that initial proposal recommendation. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think, you know, um, you can't get away from the fact that what we are both doing as organisations is joining marketing and sales at the hip. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. And, you know, the other thing I would say, and I know we're going to come on and talk about how mm. the world of sales and marketing in, in industry has changed over the last however many years, but there's no getting away from the fact that decisions are still made on the basis of an emotional engagement, mm. which is then validated by by the numbers and by mm. the qualification criteria. Mm. And and what that really means, in essence, is people still buy people. Yeah. And, um, you know, whether we're delivering that people experience through direct engagement over the telephone, for example, through telemarketing, or whether collectively we're delivering that initial engagement using content and I firmly believe it's absolutely still got to be a mix of both yeah. you know digital marketing isn't this golden bullet that replaces human interaction mm. it's something that supplements and complements that mm. or at least that's the way it should be working so again you know that's another very good reason why you know Joe and I felt our businesses were a good fit for each other mm. yeah no it's amazing I think it helps to set the scene so thank you for both uh, giving that overview I mean just so people can know what to expect from the five key areas as they yep. haven't been specified yet so it's going to be a change in procurement yeah collaboration sales professionals and why they need to be elite mm -hmm. being proactive in raising a risk mm. um and also becoming more targeted and how it allows you to differentiate yourself so those sure. are the key areas and we're obviously going to get into yeah. procurement first i yeah. wanted to ask you initially joe yeah especially over the last few years how has procurement changed in your eyes I think it's changed more towards the last couple of years. And I'm okay. sure Paul's seen a difference in behaviours when it comes to tender opportunities and and certainly when you are working with more of the enterprise level clients. Um, we actually had a tender opportunity come through recently um, and it's now not specified around price or decisions not made on price because often enough in procurement world, someone will take a product or service offering to the procurement team and they'd normally have to take anywhere between three and five and then the procurement team would then make the decision based on a, typically in the past, probably a financial decision. It's massively changed now. Um, and I'm sure Paul will agree that the procurement team are actually more focused on, is it gonna work? Is it gonna deliver what we need? Is the pricing you know, in the right position, but it's now not driven by cost? Mm. And I think people fear the idea of going down that procurement route. And it's in, it's almost this kind of behaviour by salespeople to almost just drop the opportunity or just be like, ah, oh, I've got to go down the procurement route. And when, previously in the past, when we would have competed with people who were quoting 35 to £32 an hour for their services, um, is now not an issue to then price based on quality and, mm. and outcome. I guess, and, and level of service and not being afraid of that. I think it's the mindset of the salespeople and I think this is why when it's one of the key areas that you need to bring up now. Mm -hmm. How much has that been accelerated by the, the current recession and what's going to be for, for a long time? I would say that is the reason or the position that businesses have been in based on COVID. I think it's more of a case of people don't, people still want to not risk their marketing budgets because risk is marketing versus capital, right? So it's kind of a case of that people need to spend correctly mm. in the right services that's going to have the right outcome because the pressures from the board level now are probably have more yeah. heavy than they've ever been before. And actually you find that even actually probably in our last four or five wins within terms of business, 
board level have been involved in making that final decision and signing it off mm. because they want to know exactly how that money's been spent. Um, and it's the same with procurement now, certainly for the larger businesses. Mm. Yeah, I, I would I would certainly echo what Joe's explained there, Laurie. I mean, I think what we've, you know, there is the tendency for salespeople to want to back away from procurement-led processes. And, you know, I can't, we all understand that. I think, you know, from a marketing um, perspective, obviously it makes sense to get in earlier in in the companies the, the prospective clients buying journey and and you know that golden rule of if you can be the vendor that's actually setting the agenda mm. with the RFI the RFP the RFQ then yeah. certainly that that's a much stronger position to be in sure. than coming in at the end and just being <clears throat> one of the people that gets invited to bid yeah and um, but and, and that generally involves getting in front of stakeholders, the other stakeholders in the decision-making unit, and some of the key influences earlier in the process. Yeah. And and that's where I think you know the marketing piece does come in because what we're trying to do is to surround all of the decision makers and key influences with awareness and knowledge that mm. there's people out there that understand their world intimately mm. and can offer some value. Yeah. But having said that, ultimately, particularly within the enterprise market and and bigger opportunities or bigger value deals we're going to end up at some point talking to procurement mm-hmm. um and i you know it, we're not to shy away from that mm. but it, again like any buying relationship or decision making relationships understanding what's important to the mm. procurement team as well mm. and you know i often say to people that the biggest barrier to moving a deal forward is not yeah. always the competition mm. it's actually the fear of change and the fear of uncertainty on the part of the buyer it's often easier for them to not do something yeah. than to actually do something yeah and part of our role as professional business development as sales and marketing people mm. is to firstly qualify those prospects to an intimate level of granularity and mm. this i know this will come on mm. we'll come on to talk about that with this, this sort of elite sales approach yeah proper qualification then puts you in a much better position where you are you know it's clear to both sides of the discussion that you are a decent fit and then it's about understanding what's really really important to them because as you said joe yes price is always going to be important to Mm. a degree but return on investment risk reduction Mm. and also actually showing what i found over the years is showing prospects a very clear path to follow Mm. once they've made the decision is part of that de-risking for them. It's about them understanding, okay, I understand what you want us to do next and why it's important that both parties do whatever's next on the the journey. Mm. And and I think that's what's important when you're going through that sort of tendering process is demonstrating that ability to firstly understand what their world's all about, what's really, really important to them, but also showing them what needs to happen next. Sure. Mm. And that Mm. takes away that uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this that this bit stems from the fact that we just we got approached for a tender who we were speaking to for a while and a large automotive manufacturer, um, and and our first questions were addressing the procurement process and what was important mm. because if they don't highlight the the quality side of it, if price is an important factor, which it will be taken into consideration mm. probably in the final two or the final three if you make that stage. Um, having done a few tenders before, that's when price probably comes in. Um, but, yeah, I, I normally address that early, that is your procurement process to be on price because I'm telling you now, we might quite differently, but you'll have a good job. But mm-hmm. anyway. 
I wanted to actually ask you, Paul, so again, <clears throat> from looking at your LinkedIn, I think you've held 16 professional positions. Yeah. So I'm sure that you've been in companies that have dealt with a procurement process well, yeah. and some maybe not so well. Absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, what's a characteristic that has been consistent with the businesses that have dealt with that process well? Um, it's going back to what I said a few moments ago, Laurie. I think it's about get, getting a very clear understanding mm. of, of what their world looks like mm. and what's important to them. Mm. And, you know, the only way you can ever understand those things is to ask the right sorts of questions. Mm. You know, I'm a very big fan of um, a book called Gap Selling by a chap called Jim Keenan that yeah, you've no, probably well. come across. You know, no one cares what you do. They only care about how it's going to help them get done what they need to yeah. get done and bridge the gap from where they are now, which might be a somewhat undesirable situation, to their desired future outcome. And it's it's our job as professional business-to-business -business people to dive deep early on, and this speaks to what you were just saying, Joe, about mm -hmm. understanding what's important to them. Yes, price is always going to be a factor. Somebody's got to sign off on, a, on, a, on an investment at some point. But if they're doing it in the knowledge that the vendor that they're talking to, the vendors they've shortlisted have a deep understanding of what they're trying to achieve, mm. then, you know, it's a much better process for both mm. the vendor and the potential customer. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, exploring their needs is, is absolutely critical. Mm. Uh, but also not, not just exploring their needs and expecting them to tell you everything. Mm. It's about you showing that pathway. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's about you demonstrating your understanding of their world by actually doing it and actually yeah. saying, okay, your problem is this. Or we, or even even earlier in the process, we've we've done some work on looking at your business, and mm. we can see that you, you're potentially suffering with these kind of issues or these mm. kind of challenges. Is that correct? Okay, yes, it is. Okay, so tell me a bit about why that's more important, or mm. why it's important that you address those issues. Mm. It's that kind of consultative mm -hmm. approach, which I think is absolutely critical. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You touched on the pathway, which I think perfectly leads us into the area of collaboration. Um, so I wanted to ask you, Joe, how much more important now, because you've said to me a lot of times before, look, the buyer's more in charge than ever, this, that, and the other. So how much more important do you think it is now to be seen as a problem-solving partner as mm. opposed to just a salesperson or someone that's looking for that sale? I mean, that's like probably the, the main focus on when it comes to content, when it comes to... Uh, initial engagement via LinkedIn when it comes to initial engagement via telemarketing, email, whatever that may be. It's always to answer the, the that kind of pain or the frequently asked questions bit. You know, our content's driven. I'm sure you've seen a lot. It's just like, you know, we would literally quote a statement that a client would normally say as an objection. Mm. We're kind of preempting these objections yeah. from even a content perspective. Um, you know, we, we do things quite ballsy, like send a you know a certain email to someone with with the subject line of the statement that typically is always said, and you know, and and then actually go into something from there. Um, it could be even sharing a you know sharing that piece of content with them yeah. if we've heard them on the call. Um, there are lots of ways to do it, but it's more important now to even pre-address these things. Mm. Um, you know, you know, even before you think about even engaging with the prospects, even at the early stages when we've got our cadences and we're just clicking follow, we're not even clicking connect yet. You know, we want people to look into us a little bit. We can see that visibility sometimes enough that they might have seen one of them frequently asked questions that we posted this week, or we might have 
seeing the pain that we manage to solve in a current client business, you know, mm. it, it's basically our priority mm. here at yeah. Curdos. And it's something that we push a lot into our client campaigns as well. Mm. And the mindset of our clients. Because mm. a lot of that, I guess, you could say if you were to put that in a box is about building trust, essentially. 100%. So from your perspective, Paul, how's that changed, building trust with a client? Um the fundamental human elements of it haven't changed. So, you know, I started my professional sales career in 1988. Mm. I went to, I think my first ever sales training event was at IBM's headquarters mm. in North Harbour in Portsmouth, just, just a few minutes drive from here. Mm. And the guy that was presenting um, the, the the sort of sales training programme, I think one of the first analogies he gave, which is one that's often used in the sales world, is sell me a drill. Mm. <laughs> And it's the five whys. And, it, and it, you know, it's, nobody wants, you know, I want to buy a drill. Why do you want to buy a drill? Well, I need to put four holes in the wall. Why do you want to put four holes in the wall? I want to put four mm. wall plugs in the wall. Why do you want to do that? I want to put a bookshelf up. Why do you want to put a bookshelf up? Because my wife keeps shouting at me because I leave my books lying on the floor in the hallway and she trips over them. So you don't want to buy a drill. You want to have matrimonial harmony. I mean, mm. it's a silly example, mm. but actually it's stuck with me all these years. And I think it certainly rings true. Mm -hmm. So how do you develop trust? You develop trust, but just in the same way as that we would do in a social environment. It's by showing an interest in people, yeah. demonstrating an understanding of their world. And, you know, although we're talking now, it's more about listening, yeah. asking the right questions at the right time, and it sells 101 and listening. And then if your proposition fits, then, you know, starting to engage on that basis. If it doesn't, it's also, in terms of trust, about being really honest and saying... I don't think we can help you with that particular challenge, but perhaps I can find somebody else that can help mm. you. And they remember that. And they remember that. You know, I mean, I, I I brought a client in about, I guess, about three months ago. The first conversation I had with this with with the guy, um, it's a big um, engineering consultancy firm, was over two years ago, mm. and we built a good level of trust. But they just weren't in a position to move things forward at that point. And I'd kind of almost given up on them, if I'm honest. Mm. And then three, four months ago, he called me up mm. and said, Paul, we were really impressed with the initial engagement with you and your team. Um, we're now ready to do something. Can we get started? So mm. we've done some campaign development for them. Um, we're hopeful, you know, that's working out quite well. We're hopeful of moving that forward mm. with a bigger engagement very shortly. And that's because we built the trust. Mm. I wasn't sales, uh, too salesy, wasn't punching in between the eyes and saying, hey, buy something. Um, you know, and Joe and I have talked about the irritation that you get when people send you a LinkedIn connection request and 30 seconds later they're pitching you. Mm. That's it. Bad news, don't do that. Um, because that's not a trustworthy way to behave. We wouldn't like that, you know. It's mm, exactly. Buy me a coffee first before inviting me away for the <laughs> weekend at least, you I know. I think we touched yeah. upon this in plenty of our yeah. episodes. Yeah. It's like, you know, getting that trust from a, a client is is so important and we talk about all the time about people going back to my team and mm. it's because you you're not trying to sell at them and this is what this is all about is like getting people out of that trying to sell before you even found out a pain and and becoming a bit more elite in your approach mm. and we're very relatable and that's why i've invited paul on to discuss the subject so yeah, 100%. Talking about sales, let's move on to yep. the, the next topic, which specifically is about salespeople being elite or needing to be elite yeah. in yep. this world. And I remember specifically, I think it's 
Brian Tracy, no excuses. And I think Stu used to yeah. go on about it a lot back in the mm-hmm. day. He used to say the best companies or the most successful companies have the best salespeople. Um, so I wanted to ask you specifically, Joe, because I know you've raised it now for a reason. Why, mm. why is it more important now? Because it doesn't work anymore. Like the old persuasive, like being able to persuade someone into something to release their money, it doesn't work as it used to now. Like now, like it's again the mindset, the buyer, the control, making sure they I make their investments more. right. Their CEO is going to have them for breakfast if they don't, you know, don't actually deliver on their investment. And this is why we're trying to get people to be elite. That we worked in company which was very much, you know selling sand to an Egyptian uh, attitude, you know. Mm. Oh, I could sell sand to an Egyptian. That worked. You know, these old, you, know you yeah. probably remember Paul. No, that's not <laughs> yeah. an age dig. That's yeah. just, that's like, in, right. gen- in general, like, my dad used to work for Lotus Notes and very much it was like, and selling Lotus Notes is hilarious because it's, like, it's not even probably used now. Um, but it's it's changing and becoming elite. I think I mentioned to you before the podcast about Ben Royale, mm. uh, Five Pillars of an Elite Salesperson. I've got it over there. It's a great book, highly recommend. And he actually, all it is is him interviewing people and there's a common trend there about the, the pillars to become an elite. Mm. Um, I think it's called The Pillars of an Elite Salespeople. I might have quoted that wrong, but Ben Royale. Um and 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 that was the first time I started to get a feel for it when I bought that book. And I started to then realise actually these dead end persuasive tactics to force someone into a sale does not work anymore. Mm. And it's about becoming different, preempting objections, and 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 being almost about them and honest in the approach as well. Paul mentioned the approach that he uses. It's about being transparent, honest, and then even saying, we're probably not a right fit for you now. But then that person goes back to Paul. And it's almost yeah. building enough relationships in that way and being different and not and just being human. The whole car sales technique does not work anymore. Mm. And it, you need to be more elite. You need to be thinking outside the box more and, and bringing more to the table. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with that. And, you know... Sometimes you might get a sale mm. by adopting that approach. But, you know, particularly in the sectors that we're all working in, where we're looking for, we're, what we're looking for, sustainable long-term relationships, mm. okay? that Our businesses are built on that. That's how we manage to pay our people and, and, mm. and, and build some growth into our companies. And, you know, that one, one and done sort of, ha I've got the order and off on your toes thing, is just, it just doesn't work in that environment anymore. And it's not appropriate. And to be honest, we, what we've got to do always is think about what we're doing through the eyes of the people we're, we're trying to engage with. Yeah. You know, our job is to help them <clears throat> make a, a good decision about a solution to help them solve a problem that they've already identified. Mm. Part of our role often is to tease out of them you know, what the positive and negative implications of making a decision and doing something or not doing it are as well. But we should always be coming at that from a genuinely benign standpoint. Yeah. Because that's how you build really good relationships. That's how you have a sustainable business and that's how you help them to have a sustainable business. 100%. I mean, it's so important. Mm. And if you do it right, plus also you do your own opportunity qualification properly 
then what you're going to do is attract the right type of opportunities to your own business. And I spent a lot of time talking about this with our clients in mm-hmm. respect of their business, not, not just in terms of trying to sell to them. You know, you become magnetic to the right types of relationships for your yeah. own business. Mm-hmm. And it, it's so important. Yeah. I wanted to ask you with all those things in mind that you said, Paul, how has your recruitment process changed over the years? What characteristics would you look for in a sales individual today versus yeah. what you would have looked at 15 years ago? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can speak more broadly, not, not uh, you know, I need to speak more broadly, not just in terms of the time that I've been with Intergage. I mean, I've only been in the business three years. Mm. I've known the founders of the company over 40 years. Hmm. Uh, so I've always watched with interest the way that the business has developed. And I think from a cultural perspective, um, we've got, We've got some very clear cultural values at group level and also some similar but slightly different ones within our own, within the agency division of the group. And, you know, one of the group level values is courageous honesty. So it's about having confidence, um, modest confidence to say the right thing at the right time. So it comes back to what we were just discussing, Joe. Mm. If I, I, if I genuinely don't believe I can help you properly, then I'm going to tell you mm. and I'm going to maybe give you a little bit of advice and if I can find help find somebody else who can help you better than I can, then I'll do it. And that builds that level mm. of trust. It's about courageous honesty when, once you're engaged with a client, about, about saying, be, saying this bit of what we're doing together is not working. Mm. We need to change direction and here's the reasons why and here's why doing something else is going to work out better. And all of that kind of attitude is what builds trust you know within the digital marketing domain uh you know we've heard over the years from from clients that we picked up from other agencies you know some brilliant agencies and brilliant people out there but you know you quite often find there's a rumbling of discontent on the part of the client that they don't feel they're getting value mm-hmm. they don't feel that people are really working <clears throat> on their behalf they're not getting a return on the investment yep and that's often because they've approached the sale and the relationship that the, the vendor has approached the sale and the relationship in the wrong way. Yeah. They've not properly qualified the opportunity at the beginning of the process. They've taken on board something that they're really not geared up to offer properly. Um, and then it, it just ends up being a mess for everybody. You know, we walk away from as many opportunities as we take on and that's right. by design. Um, yeah. And it's a very important thing to do. And yeah. I advise our clients to do the same thing yeah. in terms of, you know, their their business and Absolutely. their customer and, and, and just going back to that point there the clients who are you know complaining about their you know the, the return on investment on their campaigns etc it's because they're working with companies that forces them into a one in ten attitude one in twenty attitude conversion rates but that's what they've always been used to but again that's another reason why we need to change because mm. they're not qualifying properly they're not being honest in their initial approach you know, if you think about it in life insurance, well, one of my friends is a financial advisor for a, a good uh, uh, life insurance company, and he converts probably one in every two. And I said that is an unbelievable close rate. Mm. And it and he it doesn't even sound like he says because I've heard him pitch a few of his clients, but well, not even pitch, have a conversation with a couple of his clients before. But he told me there's three levels of qualification before it even reaches him. There's mm. an online qualification, there's the next stage qualification, there's on. There's a second consultative uh, qualification call, and then it goes through to him, 
and it's like positioned perfectly. But the reason why it goes through to him is because he can advise on certain areas and take it to brokers, etc. If if needed, but that is a well thought process because they're trying to limit the number of opportunities that are coming through and not making it to a close. And I think if we were as granular as we are in life insurance, which is mm. crucial to a payout in in the most you know awful of outcomes, mm. but it's important. Um, mm. But if we all thought like qualifying things in like into the, the life insurance stage, we'd all be converting properly, but we'd also all be very honest. Mm. Yeah. And it works. Yeah, that's you know? true. Final point <clears throat> on the elite salespeople and yeah. how the characteristics have changed. People often say, and I agree with, that practice makes permanence as opposed to perfection. Yeah. Or, mm. So I wanted to ask you, Joe, how hard is it to retrain a heavily trained salesperson that has the characteristics of an old strategy that was effective? It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. And I think this is why you almost need to have. And I think sometimes letting someone, often enough, so say if I took a top salesperson in a SaaS company and brought them over, they were always top boy or top girl and they were always delivering the numbers and, and you know, they were making some heavy commission, I would almost just let them fail first. Because when you've gone into a brand that's got a different ethos and a different mindset and actually the tactics there that historically has worked for that person stops, is started to stop working and that's the reason why they're leaving, They'll come over with that same attitude that they've always had and then you almost need to let them fail first and then have that honest conversation. And I think it's... Well, I use these techniques that Steve Cass gave me, which is kind of break, 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 build, break, break, build, build. Um, and it's depending mm -hmm. on where the attitude level is of the individual. So let's take an example. You've got quite a cocky, arrogant person um, that's always used to delivering and is not delivering. And you've almost need to um, humble them in a way. And I always I use this with my leadership team. You know, with with when they're managing each people, like they give me scenarios and I'll talk about the different techniques. So the break could be, look, you know, clearly something is not working here. Yeah. Right. The build, but I can, you know, I'm confident I can give you the tools to turn mm. around, turn this around. The break at the end could be, but you need to wake up to this idea that it's not working and you need to be on board with this. Yeah. And you're almost grounding Absolutely. someone a little bit. Yeah. And that's a very shortened version of that technique. But, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree, Joe. And I think to kind of come back to answering your the question, you know, how's things changed? I think, you know, that focus on trust building and empathy with your prospective customer is so critical now, more so mm. than it's ever been. It, it was always critical, but mm. I think it fell to the back through some of the old school sales techniques. Yeah. And I think talking about how mm. selecting staff, um, you know, it was interesting listening to your one of your previous podcasts with your with your colleague um, Jody. Jody, mm. that was good. And, and I, I was really in. I was really intrigued, and also um, very much aligned with what she was saying about culture. So, mm -hmm. going back to the late '90s, I was part of the startup team in in a big, um, what became one of the original dot com unicorns, a company mm. called Infospace. And we, you know, myself and a, an old colleague um, had set up the business in Europe, the European subsidiary of this group. 
And we were hiring people. And, you know, it was back in the day where, you know, there was a lot of money being thrown around in that space. Yeah. Um, and we were hiring hiring people. And one of the best people I ever hired was a young guy who'd worked for um, a European PC manufacturer. Mm. And there was just something about him. Firstly, he was very much service-led. And he had that, I care and I want to help you get better kind of attitude. Do you think you can teach that? No, you can't. Uh, probably not, no. I think it's endemic within people. You, you, you see it very quickly if somebody actually is interested and they care about other people. And I think that's one of the big changes that I've seen over the years in sales in a positive way. Those salespeople that are most effective, sustainably, are the people that actually, they, they have a, a decent raison d'etre a why you know I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek yeah me too you yeah. know the why matching your whys with people is is absolutely probably the most critical thing you can do because going back to what I said earlier decisions to engage are made emotionally and the logic and the data validates that decision yeah Okay, so if somebody doesn't like you, doesn't trust you, doesn't believe you, you're willing to work with them, understand them and have empathy with them and vice versa, you're not going to do, you might do some business, but it won't be good business or you won't do any business. And I think part of that idea of interviewing for people is to really get to the nub of who they really are. Yeah. And it's an attitudinal thing. And then, you know, if you've got decent people on the leadership team, and middle management team who share that same ethos. And quite frankly, if you've got that approach to recruit, recruiting based on attitude and aptitude rather than experience, because we mm. do this a lot, by the way, mm. you can mentor these mentor these people. You can help shape them to deliver real value for, themse- for themselves. They're going to be happy. And if they're happy, because yeah. they've got the right attitude, they're going to go above and beyond for your client. Agreed. So, I, I, yeah, I think that's the big change. That, that's it's massive what you just said there. But going back to the person you just described, the, the, who I would have to mould or how I would change him, I would probably never have recruited him in the first place. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then, yeah, and actually, I, that should have been my answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but it's also good to talk about, look, you're not as much as good as your recruitment process is. Sometimes you just don't know someone until you've hired them and you've had them for three months and then all of a sudden something comes out. But, yeah, massive. The recruitment part of that is massive and the empathy bit in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a difference between being fake and that empathy and being genuine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that authenticity is at the core of everything now that we do from a marketing and sales mm. perspective. You know, it go, again, goes back to what I was saying about that early phase engagement that I don't like the phrase, but the top of funnel engagement mm-hmm. um, from a content perspective. Um you know, at a human level, no one cares what you do. They just care about how you can help them make their lives better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you can demonstrate you understand their world and, and demonstrate empathy yeah. and have a solution, mm. then you've got a chance of engaging. Mm. You know, we, we, I talk about this a lot when I'm talking about website UX. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know, your typical website journey, particularly these days, is somebody's going to go and use a search engine to find some information to educate themselves. Now, here's an interesting stat that came out of a Gartner industrial survey that was conducted um, with senior decision makers in industry back in 2019. Those decision makers were only spending 17% of their buying journey time talking with sales professionals from vendors. 
Mm. 17%. So what were they doing for the other 83% of the time? They were... A big chunk of that 83% was researching and validating their long list of potential vendors by doing online research. Okay. Um, The other stat that came out of that survey is is really cool as well, in the sense that it seems that since time began in B2B sales, most companies will lose about 20 to 25% of the opportunities in their deal board or in their pipeline right towards the end of the buying process. And it's kind of always been the way because, you know, stuff happens. Personnel on the on the, on the the prospect side change. Budgets get pulled. Something else happens. Mm. So you're going to lose about a fifth to a quarter of any deal in your at the average B2B salesperson's pipeline. Mm. But if you don't show up in the right way at the right time with the right attitude at the beginning of their buying process, yeah. okay, you lose 100% of the deals yeah. that you didn't get to hear about. It's interesting you say that because we had an episode a couple of weeks ago. So you're talking about losing an opportunity from a sales perspective at yeah. that stage. But then we were talking the other week about losing it at a certain stage from a content perspective mm-hmm. and that visibility with Big Ten Can. Uh, yes. I mean, these uh, these analysis could go on and mm. you plug it all together. You plug all these episodes yeah. together, you'd be an, an animal right now, wouldn't you? So, so how do you show up? I mean, that's what it all comes yeah. back to. At that beginning of that process, to your yeah. point, Joe, you show up by creating content that demonstrates empathy, understanding, and, yeah. uh, and, and sees the world through their eyes. Mm. You answer their questions mm. in a relatable way, yeah. and then you've got a chance. Yeah. You can be part of that journey that yeah. they take. If you don't, you just don't. You're just not discoverable. And if you're not discoverable from a digital perspective these days, you know you're you're on the back foot yeah. as a as a vendor. Um, it, it's there's no getting away from it. And you know, I mean, I compare back to when I was bombing around the countryside in my Peugeot two hundred five with my shiny briefcase and my <laughs> terrible nineteen eighties wide shouldered Bugsy Malone's pinstripe suit and shiny red braces and all that kind of stuff, with my shiny briefcase full of shiny brochures. Which doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> not not so much in the same way, but in those days, the sales person, if they were good and acted with integrity, became one of the three sources of market intelligence for mm. their prospective buyers. Mm. Trade shows, magazines, sale, decent salespeople. Yeah. Okay. With shiny shoes. With shiny shoes, and we probably accounted. If you if you sing, uh, sort of see this marketing sales process as the inverted sort of triangle. Yeah. Uh, salespeople. We probably accounted for eighty to eighty-five percent of the journey, mm. whereas the marketing people came in at the beginning, and essentially they were referred to somewhat pejoratively by the salespeople as the colouring in department. They you designed the annual trade show booth and you made the brochures. Mm. Okay, that dynamic has, to a large degree, flipped completely yeah, over. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. the salespeople generally <clears throat> coming in much later in the process. Yeah. So for the last twenty percent or twenty-five percent. Yeah. Um, so the job of marketing is to start to kind of get that engagement, build that empathy. And to your point about cadences, I know that's your your uh, your absolute keyword in everything it you is, talk about. Yeah. The cadences these days, not so much pick up the phone. It still works and it's still necessary, but it's warm things up a bit yeah. first by various multimedia, multi-channel approaches so that you can then attract the right type of opportunity. And when you... When you pick up the phone, mm. absolutely, there's something there already. It just to becomes be, to easier be, then, yeah. doesn't it? And then that goes back to our last episode about alignment. So yeah, mm. 
It's funny you mentioned about cadences. I'm certain Joe's going to get a tattoo. <laughs> I knew this was coming. I think I, <laughs> literally I think in our first conversation, you must have hit me with that word about 10 times. Uh, but yeah. no, I couldn't, you know, it's that, you know. I've, what, I've stopped you, trying to say it as well When you call now. it a sequence or a cadence or whatever, it, yep. it's absolutely right, you yep. know. And it's no good relying on one mode of communication uh, one channel of communication to create those relationships. Mm-hmm. You have to be everywhere they're at. Yeah. I'm now going to go back through my episodes and see how many, <laughs> I say, how many times I say it. But well, no, it's, it's authentic, and you spoke about authenticity <laughs> earlier. Yeah. Before, so to link that, be in, true yeah. to yourself. Because if if you can't be true to yourself, how can yeah. anyone else trust you? I agree. Absolutely. And part yeah. of building that trust is the next topic, which is obviously talking about risk, Joe. So yeah. I know you put within the write-up uh, raising risk in yeah. brackets the right way. What's, yes. what's the right way? Um, it, well, okay, let's talk about what I mean by risk. Because often mm, people, yeah. will, well, people will think, well, a risk in a sale. Well, it's kind of that. It's the risk in stopping that sale from going forward right and and often salespeople would raise the risk after they've even provided the recommendation so a good example of this i had this scenario the other day right uh with one of my sales guys he took a sale and and i and he recorded it luckily he recorded it and and he was like, yeah, I'm like 95% confident I'm going to close this deal. And I was like, this guy has not analysed the risk. He's speaking to a marketing director. It's too good to be true. Mm. So you're telling me the budget's signed off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Budget signed off. And I'm like, hmm. I listened to the call, wasn't convinced. I then mm. wrote down that outcome on a page on my piece of paper. And what happened was they came back and we, we quoted something like 72 grand. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I was like, I d- we can't be just quoting 72 grand to a marketing director without knowing other things. So I, I wanted this person to learn, right? Um, and there wasn't enough analyzing of the risk. What could impact that sale from not coming in? Yeah. And the moment you teach a salesperson to, to almost preempt the risks and ask the questions that they would probably be quite afraid of a lot of salespeople to ask because they don't want to not propose mm. this person... Whereas actually I'm saying, I don't give a crap if you don't propose these people. Um, get to the point of where, where this, this deal could fall short. Mm-hmm. Analyze the risks that can impact you from closing it. So lo and behold, came back, came to this decision call. I sat there and listened to this decision call. Uh, marketing director turned around and goes, yeah, I've taken it to my board, your recommendation. Which is a loom, that person could view it. Didn't even look at it because I know that. It was only viewed once since that discussion, yeah, my board said it's too expensive. It's too much money. We can hire someone full-time internally. And I was like, you didn't analyze the risks, factually. What you should have done is, okay, so what? Yeah. What, what? what is the sign-off process from here? It's quite a lead sales question. You could get a bit more granular with that. Um, so it's understanding, okay, so what are the stages from here? Um, well, I need to go and speak to my CEO about the the level of investment I can release for this. Mm. Um, okay, I'll be honest with you. Typically in the past, if I've given a recommendation, we are going to look more expensive on paper than hiring internally. Mm. But I also want to be clear, there is a lot more that's involved in that process from our side that you're paying for. 
I want this. I want. I first want you to go and speak to your director about the budgets that are available. Your your CEO about the budgets that are available before we. I send you a recommendation, or you you can even state. Look, I'd like to actually meet your CEO first. Mm. Yeah. I, I'd like to meet your CEO as well. You know, because actually you're then preempting any risks that might happen. They wanted to run this over a year because of the sales cycle fine we're happy to do that but for us to then put a recommendation in front of someone for 72 grand and they think oh we can hire someone but there's so much more that's included that the ceo is not going to listen to when it's passed through a marketing director right it's almost like how do we communicate that in the right way you know what what else do i need to find out what's the sign-off process is you know is your is your CEO even willing to invest in a full-time member of staff right now? And lo and behold, the, the marketing director's come back and gone, yeah, my director's like, doesn't even want to do anything. Why the freaking hell are we having this conversation in the first place, right? You have a pain point, right? But the, these, and you've you spent hours on end putting a 72 grand proposal together, which was a great thing to happen for me because now that person's now analyzing risks within the business. We had another one, you know, we had a current client come to us who said, Joe, here's the situation. Um, Basically, two of my internal sales account managers have left. Here's the job that they do. Um, And and basically, uh, I'm in, I'm overran with work right now and I'm having to account manage these whilst do everything else. Gap in opportunity. Oh, okay, we can help you with that. We can actually do that role. They understood the numbers within terms of current client lists to engage with, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what we had to do for the point of sale, et cetera, how that they were incentivized as individuals. And they went, okay, great. Well, I'm going to go away and put a proposal together. But, um, and then, and they said, oh, when's your meeting with your director to talk about how you're going to replace these people? Oh, it's tomorrow. Oh, okay. And then went, well, I'll get a proposal for that meeting. And I'm like sitting there going, no, 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 no. What you should have done is taken a step back. Mm. And you should have said, right, look, I don't want to just chuck you a proposal. You take that to your director and then there'd be a hurdle there. You haven't even had a discussion about the contingency for losing these two people to a competitor. So then, you know, uh, my head of operations is then going, hmm, yeah. Because then when she's then had that call with our client, they've had then had the discussion. She's already got the quote and said, oh, Curtis are quoting us this for this. And actually, we didn't even know in the first place what they wanted to do. Yeah, because we didn't analyze the risk. Laura, have you had that discussion with your director yet? No, okay. Yeah. You know, I've just quoted the person. I'm sure they won't mind. But they, they, they haven't had that discussion yet mm. to even understand whether that they, they're even going to hire or replace them yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. and 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 getting the salespeople to think about the risks and preempt them is so important. I, I think you're right, Joe. I think <clears> it's about getting salespeople and marketers to think like business owners and senior decision makers. You know, if you're if you're running a business and you're looking at your budgets, you're looking at your your, your sort of sales targets, your business objectives, you're going to be weighing up. You don't have endless amounts of money and endless amounts of resource. Nope. You're going to be weighing up the pros and cons of where you put your emphasis, where you spend your money, where you where you deploy that resource, whether you need to buy more resource. And you 
no business can do everything it wants to do. So there's a there are risks associated with things. And, and as professional sales and business development and marketing people, we need to think in that way. We need to preempt it, as you say. Okay, so if if Fred, the, the, the finance director, what's Fred, the finance director, likely to do when he sees this? How's yeah. he going to react? Yeah. You know, what are his options? You know, and, and, and the fail-safe option or the fallback option is always do nothing. Mm. Yeah. Okay, um, so part of the sales job with those early, you know, the people that you start engaging with is to just keep going down the why. Okay, yeah. so what does that mean to the business then? <clears throat> so what, what's, the, what's the impact if we don't, don't if you do don't it, make yeah. that change? Um, because it's, it's so difficult to, to, to get a proper understanding of the business if you don't yeah you, quite frankly if you don't have the balls to have those types of discussions and look we used to do and it, it comes with it comes with experience it comes with confidence mm. that yeah. is something if the person's got the right attitude though that you can coach them and do you know what when you do their mm. confidence level builds yeah. and they will become more successful mm. we, I, mean, I was just going to say there we we used to do it to a certain extent towards the latter part of the conversation but it wasn't enough and I think it's it's almost like now the salespeople and certainly the elite of sales are already doing this is that they're actually not afraid to tell their decision maker to go away and come back. Mm. Yeah. You know, and and actually we were so eager and so like target driven and so pressurized in previous roles that actually we need it to get to, uh, we almost need these people to be going go away and have that conversation yeah. first. I'm going to catch up with you after that. Mm. Yeah, there's two things that come out of that. I mean, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Jeb Blunt. Yeah, uh, Fanatical same. prospecting, yeah. emotional IQ in sales, all that kind of thing. And, you know, Jeb says in a number of his books, slow down to go faster. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of um, wisdom in that statement. Mm. It's if you get these things properly qualified, if you drill deep on the exploration, the discovery and get answers to all those questions and do that risk assessment yourself in terms mm. of what are their other options, yeah. you've got a mu it might take a bit longer and it's more hard work. It's a bit like in the pre-sales research, sure. you know, for your cadences. Yeah. But you're going to become more effective yeah. and more focused over time. Mm -hmm. And you, you might not have to have 20 conversations to close five deals. You might, because you get better at it, you might only have to have 10 conversations yeah. to close five deal. So, you know, it balances off against all of the work that goes in. I don't write proposals anymore no. in the initial phase until I'm absolutely sure that I've properly qualified. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think it, it could, I'm thinking back to old times now. There was plenty of occasions where I was three hours away from Portsmouth having a meeting where I, I could have said, do you know what? You go and have that conversation mm. this afternoon and I'm going to stay up here overnight and we'll catch up in the morning. And yeah. it, Or I'll pop by and I'll just understand what that looks like, you know, or let's get some time in for tomorrow because I'll just make up that I'm up there for night. And you say, look, let's get some time in for tomorrow. I only need half an, half an hour to really understand what the outcome of your discussions were. And then that can then justify my time putting a proposal together. Mm. I mean, it's well worth sitting. Yeah, sitting I, I would also say, there. actually, on that point, um, I'm very much a fan of um, micro-commitments moving the, moving the deal forward. So, you know, as prof business professionals, and I think it's about having personal confidence and stature as a salesperson, yeah. okay, we're there to do a good job. We're there to help them. And if you come, come at it from that perspective, then 
you have the right to ask those questions mm. and ask for them to do things. And, and to be <clears> honest, <throat> if they're not willing to do some of those things, it's probably not a good opportunity. Sure. Mm. 100%. It's really yeah. good advice. And I wanted to kind of move things into the last area. And one thing that you said there, Paul, was about understanding your prospects, understanding yeah. the business and stuff like that. And I guess one way that you can ensure that you understand businesses to a certain level is to be targeted. So to speak mm. about how that helps you differentiate yourself from your competitors, Joe, because yeah. I know that was a topic. What would you say to a business owner that says, look, we work across all industries because that means we can generate more business because we don't yep. say no to anyone. <laughs> well, here we go. <laughs> yeah, uh, big I, topic. <laughs> I, I say this to ev, every person you say, oh, we, we pretty much, you know, someone who goes, oh, we can work with anyone. Okay, let's look at 90%, you know, let's look at your portfolio and let's see where the majority sits within. That is the area you need to target. People to need, need to, because otherwise your content is all over the place as well. It doesn't align with sales properly. How can you, if you want to grow in a certain area, that is fine, but you almost need to dominate one area before you can move on to the next. Yeah. For example, with us, you know, we did this, uh, you know, ages ago now, we came more targeted. We went, okay, where are we working well within manufacturing and engineering? That's how we met. Yeah. <clears throat> I went, there's no reason why we can't go back to SaaS, IT, managed services, HR, software, or you know, all the other clients that we've worked with in the past. It, but it was like, let's focus on becoming or actually demonstrating why we are uh, a category leader king. in uh, Category King. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Great book. Um, yeah, uh, I'm trying to words. think what the book's called now. How funny. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they refer to Category King and it's almost like focus on one industry, become specific to that industry, relatable to that industry, to the point where your funnel is so, so organic in that industry, and then you can look at another industry. There's nothing wrong with working in multiple industries. Look, if someone comes to me and I know that we could do a good job and they're going to spend the money to get there and they're not in manufacturing engineering, great, I'll work with you. Yeah. You know, but, you know, and that does happen. It still happens now. We get we onboard clients in different industries. But our outbound and our marketing efforts is fo focused on one industry because then it, you're you have a niche, mm. you have a USP, you have you are able to relate with that audience because you have case studies. And look, you know, when we met with Adam the other day, they work in multiple sectors, but it's because they focus on one industry after the other, not this one, this one, this one, this one. Yeah, this one. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, <clears throat> one of the workshops that I present uh, regularly for, for our business with, with our client base is, you know, one of the key elements in that um, and we're talking about, you know, effective lead generation, that kind of thing, effective marketing in the manufacturing sector is just zero in on, on, a, on a niche, mm. a niche within a niche in some yeah. senses. You know, I tell, this is what we tell our, our prospective clients and our clients. You can't, you know, yes, you could try to be all things to all men, but as Joe said, it dilutes your messaging, it dilutes your content. Actually, that brings me on to another point. One of the weakest things we often see within a business's um, marketing and sales setup is they don't know who they are. Yeah. They, their sales messaging is all over the place. And, you know, we've... Uh, we work with some, you know, increasingly some very high value clients. Uh, one of which is a in the industrial sector is a, is a household name, mm. um, and you know this is a company that's got armies of marketing people, uh, and they're very very capable. They're very, you know, they're a business that generates about three billion pounds a year in revenue, 
but our little team has worked with them on sales messaging across five or six different industrial propositions, and it's been revelatory mm. for them. Mm. Um, because the problem <clears throat> is so many companies think of their product and service in terms of pitching it through their own experience, their own eyes. And they, again, back to what I was said, who are the people you're trying to sell to? And quite frankly, why should they give a toss about what you've got to say? Absolutely. Okay. If you can get those personas <clears throat> um, fully understood, who your ideal customer mm. is, and get your sales messaging for every stage of that buyer journey, yeah. what's their first value experience when they first interact with Kurdos or with Intergage or yeah. with, with whomever? What, why is that going to be different to the experience they have with somebody else? Yeah. And why is that important? If you understand that, then you can start them on that journey. So narrowing down your focus, we advocate for that every single time. Sure. To, to end on that note, yeah. and a great example of someone who has done this really well, so gone niche within a niche, 3M. So you're aware of them. They do like... The, everything. Yeah, well, they do everything. <laughs> but they have so many divisions. Um, they're a client of a clients, actually. And they work with probably about 10 of the however many divisions they are. Mm. But they have these divisions where they're relatable to each of the audience within that audience. So if you, and Siemens are another good example of this, right? They work a lot in the industrial automation, mm. industrial industry, uh, manufacturing industry, engineering industry, but then they have different divisions within that uh, within the Siemens team. And, and all of the content's different, all of the, how they relate to the client, but it could be a product that actually works very well for each of the sectors, but they've become relatable to the point where they have divisions and teams. And that's like mm. a dream for companies to get to. I mean, Siemens are obviously an enterprise client, right? But if you start to think about how they're structuring their business and their targeting and their outbound and their inbound efforts, that's how you then become very specific and yeah. and and t well more targeted. I, I mean, throwing money at <clears throat> the wall in terms of pay per click advertising and everything like that. Yeah. Um, we we don't really advocate for that unless you've got a very transactional business. Mm. Um, if it's more of a solution sell, it's more of a, a relationship you're trying to build. You build the relationship. That that's yeah. what it's all about. And but be very clear on who you're targeting and narrow down that focus. It's quite scary for some companies. They think, oh God, we've got, we need to sell all of this stuff to yeah. all of these people. Yeah. But I can't think of a single example where that's worked particularly effectively, particularly when they've, you know, like everybody, they've got limited financial resources. Mm. If you spread it too thin, yeah, it's not going to work. 100%. Yep. Amazing. So uh, from my side of things, that's pretty much everything I wanted to go through. Yep. So it's really, really interesting episode for someone that was more of a um, observer in this one. So yeah. uh, thank you both for, for the insight. I and, thought it was um, going to go that way, to be honest. Mm. I think I gave you a lot of uh, in information. Mm. Questions were good, but oh, thanks, mate. knew they were going to be lengthy. Um, like and subscribe. Yeah, well, <laughs> I always forget. I got, I got Sammy sitting over there with a board up right now, like telling me. So yeah. 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 So thanks, Laurie. Thanks, Joe. No, thanks, pleasure. Paul. Appreciate. It. Cheers, Laurie. Nice one. Mm -hmm.